Welcome to The Backpack, a podcast from Christ Community Church in Shelbyville, Kentucky. On The Backpack, we want to prepare you for the journey outside where following Jesus meets real life. Hey, welcome to The Backpack. My name is DJ. I'm one of your hosts, and thanks for joining me once again at The Canteen, one of our regular segments where we feature sermons from the preaching ministry here at Christ Community Church. This week, we continued our study called Thieves of Joy, considering the things that steal our joy in Christ as we walk through the Christian life. This week, Pastor Blake calls us to consider lust, a word that we tend to think of in a purely sexual context, but that actually means a passionate or overpowering desire for something. How can believing the lie that the things that we lust after will give us fulfillment, rob us of the joy that Christ promises us. Let's listen in to Pastor Blake as he explores that in this week's message. Let me read to you this morning our passage. If you've got your Bible, you can find 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to read that and then we'll pray together for our time in the Word and for Kenny and for Cropper uh, as we continue in our worship this morning. 1 John chapter 2. Verses 12 through 17. John says this, I'm writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you've come to know the one who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you've come to know the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. And I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. God, we thank you for your word. It's a light into our feet. It helps us to, to stay on the path that you've given to us. It's the truth that grounds us. It changes our lives forever as we continue to let it permeate our souls. And so we pray that your spirit would do that. It would fill us with your word this morning. Uh, God, we pray for Kenny as he uh, preaches the word at Cropper. We pray that you would fill him with the Spirit. We pray that you would fill that church with the Spirit. Uh, that as we uh, join churches all over our, our state and our nation and our world in proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he changes our lives forever, he gives us a limitless life. God, we pray that as that is preached and proclaimed, it would change people's lives one at a time, whether that's salvation, whether that's uh, loving you more than the world, uh, whether it's, it's simply trusting you for, for more. God, we just pray that you would change us uh, more like, to become more like you uh, and that we would receive power for our calling. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last winter, um, I, I pulled my iPad out of my backpack that I carry around to find that something or, or someone, forensics never determined the cause, had shattered my screen. And when I say shattered, I'm not talking like one crack on the side. It was shattered. There was a bunch of it. So uh, I procrastinated. It took me a few weeks, but I finally got it to a screen repair store 
who told me I could expect it back in two to three days. Maybe one more because they were a little short-staffed. Okay, that's fine. So on day four, I drive back to this store after not being able to get through on the phone, and I learned um, that my iPad hadn't even made it to the repair desk yet. <sighs> patience, patience. So they told me that I should wait about a week and uh, that they would call me to let me know when it was ready. On day eight, I was done waiting. I pick up the phone, and they say it's ready. So I drive to the store. I went inside to pick it up. And when I get there to pick it up, they bring it out, and they inform me that during the repairs, the screen had not been installed correctly, and that mistake had caused some kind of internal damage with the screen. And now in the middle of the screen, the touchscreen portion doesn't work. So you, like, you, you touch in one place, but it registers that you're touching about 1.3 inches to the left. It's really fun to deal with. It's, it's, it's awesome. Uh, so I'm already a little frustrated, and, and they said, well, you know what? As a courtesy, we're not going to charge you for the repairs. I'm like, well, thank you. That's, that's amazing. Great. And I kind of just walk away. You know, it just, it just is what it is. Well, two days later, texts and calls begin to hit my phone as church members uh, start informing me that scammers with Louisville phone numbers were pretending to be me asking for donations to cover a benevolence request. Something along the lines of, hey, this is Pastor Blake. I'm working on this ministry project. Would you be willing to help donate to the cause? I'm frustrated. I rack my brain about how these people's personal information could have been obtained. And it hits me. Perhaps an Apple ID on a tablet incorrectly fixed over a period of eight days. Really frustrated. I immediately began changing passwords. I called the police. I'm communicating with others that I, I needed no financial help for this ministry initiative, despite uh, everyone thinking that I did. Uh, and, and, you know, it just, it, it was really, for me, honestly, it was the first time that I'd ever had to deal with a scam situation like that. Lots of us have had to do it in this new day and age, but um, here's the thing. If you're like me, you get prompts all the time to change your password every so often, like, Here's the wisdom. You should change your password every six months or whatever the, the advice is. But can we just be honest? Who wants to do that? Who, who really wants to? I, I mean, I get told to do that all the time, but who has the brain space to remember multiple passwords or to take the time to put them in some other document? And I'm, I'm a tightwad. I don't want to pay for one of those password memory things. I like, and so I've just, I've just denied that I need, like, it's not going to happen to me. No big deal. I'm here to tell you, if I knew what was at stake, I would have changed my password. Right? If I knew what was at stake, I would have changed my password. When it did, right? when this actually happened, all the alarms are going off in my head. Valuable stuff is at risk. Get it secured. Fix the damage. Change your passwords. Do all the things. And because of that experience, right, I now have a, a willingness, a new willingness, to do whatever it takes to protect my stuff. I, I, I was not willing to, to let a thief take my stuff, or to hurt the people that I love, to the people that I serve, you, that you're valuable to me, and, and I would do whatever I could to protect you from people who could hurt you or, or steal from you, right, or to take something from you. And that idea applies to this whole series, this idea of thieves of joy. See, sometimes I don't think we understand or rightly value what it is to have complete joy in Christ. 
We just take it for granted that, that that's what's supposed to happen. I think if we did, we would do more to protect it and to prevent it from being stolen. We might change our password every so often, if you will. If I knew what was at stake in having my joy taken from me, I would have changed things in my life. Sometimes it takes a weird experience or an encounter in God's Word to, to help us recognize that this is what's happening, that this is true. Um, I think for most of my life, I've denied that my joy could be stolen. Maybe you've been the same. I've kind of been part of that school of hard knocks. No matter how hard things get, I need to just grin and bear it. I can always, you know, joy, joy isn't... It, I can just go get it. Like, I should just be happy. But John is teaching us that joy isn't just the absence of negative emotions. Joy is being filled with something more. It's being filled with the Spirit. Uh, my discipleship group is reading through the book of Acts right now, and um, for whatever reason, as we read through it this time, uh, this phrase just keeps jumping out chapter after chapter after chapter. Peter was filled with the Spirit. Paul was filled with the Spirit. Stephen was filled with the Spirit. All these people, these guys, these women, they were filled with the Spirit. And then out of that, they had this incredible joy that endured through all of these different circumstances. And so I'm reading through this with, with these guys, and I'm doing my hear journals, and I'm like, man, I, I might be missing something. Like, I, I don't have a ton of negative emotion in my life right now, but I'm not sure that I have this joy that comes from being filled with the Spirit like I read about in this book. And so I begin to pray and, and ask the Spirit, Spirit, would you fill me? Like, could I have that kind of joy? And this is the Holy Spirit's answer to me. Blake, I can't fill you because you're already full. I was like, oh, what does that mean? This week, as I've poured over this text in 1 John, I've come to realize that, that I fill up on a lot of junk in this world. It's summertime, and I would guess that if you have kids, they're filling up on a lot of junk, too. Popsicles, ice creams, whatever it takes to get them out of the house. Like, we, we, we tend to do this, right? We just, we just fill up on things, and we want more of it. The idea that we read about in this text is, is lust. Lust has a way of stealing my joy, of filling me with junk. And as a result, I have nothing left, no space left in me to be filled by the Spirit. Now, that word lust, our culture has, has sexualized that word like it has a lot of other things. In fact, if you begin to just Google the definition of the word lust, most definitions tie it specifically to sex. And to be fair, right, many of us have likely battled some kind of sexual lust, um, whatever that might look like. And st statistics would suggest that that's true, that most of us have, have dealt with that. But today's passage addresses lust more generally. It doesn't exclude sexual lust, but, but it's this idea that's more general. Dictionary.com's definition says lust is a, a passionate or overmastering desire or craving. Lust. Wanting more, incessantly, all the time, passionately. You see, ultimately, here's what lust does. Lust sells you the lie that there are no limits. 
Lust sells you the lie that there are no limits. When we started this series, uh, Thieves of Joy, in the middle of May, uh, I preached the first sermon, and uh, I get home from church, and I get a text message, and it says, Josh Ballard. Now, when you have a, a founding elder of the church send you a text after church, you know, it's, it, you know, you're like, oh, what is this? Did I, like, did I speak some heresy today? I'm not, you know, what's going on? So, but it wasn't that. It was, it was this really encouraging text from, from Josh, and he, he, he began to share some of his story, and, and he talked about how the enemy had stolen joy from him. And in that, I'm, I'm, I want to read these two sentences, and one of these, if, if there's one line from this whole summer of First John, I think this is what's going to stick with me. I think it'll stick with you. He, he wrote this. He said, there will not be joy without contentment. But our society and economy thrives on our discontentment. Let that sit with you for a minute. And then he says this. If you're not happy with one cow, you won't be happy with a hundred. I mean, can I get an amen on that? If you're not happy with one cow... You won't be happy with a hundred. Now, maybe you don't have cows, but there's a lot of things in our lives that we do have. Does one of them make us happy? Are we satisfied with one? Lust sells you the lie that there are no limits. John tells us where this lust comes from in verse 16 of 1 John chapter 2. He says, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions, is not from the Father, this desire for more is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is a big place with, with lots of things. And the internet and Amazon and Google have just seemed to, to make the limitless nature of it more and more real. But the reality, the truth is, this world isn't limitless. But the enemy has been trying to convince us of a limitless world since the beginning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. You may recognize the story. The woman, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. A lust of the flesh, right? Something, food, physical. And delightful to look at. Lust of the eyes. And it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. She saw this as a way for advancement, for success, to gain knowledge. And then what did she do? She ate from it, even though God had given the limit to not to. And for the record, right after that, the guy did the same thing. Jesus called Satan, the one who tempted Eve, with the same lust that you and I battle, the ruler of this world in John chapter 14. And as the ruler of this world, Satan continually sells us this idea of a limitless world. And he preys on the lust for more that lingers in our heart. Right? All of us have it. The world and its ruler is chasing us down and selling us a life with no limits. And so that begins to flesh out in all these little ways that don't seem like big, deal, big deals. Like, it's no big deal to live life without a budget. If as long as I've got enough money to pay the bills, I'm good. As long as I can save up for something, I can buy whatever I want. It carries not just with money, but also with sex. Most of our world would say, you can have sex with anyone you want. If not that, it would say you can take in all the sexual content you want as long as you don't do it. You can do all the camps and all the trips and read all the books and do all the things and have all the success and go to all the places. You can do it all. It's a limitless world. It's just a matter of what you want to do. 
What are you passionate about? The world asks. Lust, a passionate or overmastering desire or craving. And so I might ask the Spirit to answer this question in your heart right now. What is it that you lust after? What is it that you crave more of? And as he answers, we even feel our hearts sometimes struggling with like, but that's a good thing. It can be a good thing. It can. But you see, when we lust after it, when we, when we have this insatiable desire for more, it becomes an overmastering craving. Lust begins to master and control you. All of a sudden, you have to spend your time maintaining all the things that you saved up to buy. When it comes to sex, all of a sudden you have to affirm everyone else's sexual choices so that you don't have to give up yours. You have to be lonely and isolated from others because you've committed all your time to experiencing things that you want to do. I'm not the first to say what you own ends up owning you. Lust tells you the lie that there are no limits. But then, ironically, it ends up limiting you stealing your joy along the way. All right, Blake, this isn't a very positive sermon. <laughs> what about the joy in this? 2.17 offers us some good news. John writes, The world, with its lust, is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. This world, limited by our lust, is passing away. But Jesus provides a limitless life, a life that lasts forever, a life that is fulfilling. This forever life is provided, John says, to the one who, who does the will of God. And you're like, Blake, didn't you just hear the story you told in the garden? Like, we all are really inept at not choosing the things that we're craving, that we're lusting after. I mean, we are in a bad spot here. Like, I, I want to do the will of God, but I really struggle with that. So, so is John giving us an impossible command to, to do the will of God? What is it to do the will of God so that we might remain forever? Somebody else had that question. In John's gospel, chapter 6, Jesus is making waves and then walking on them. Uh, seriously, that's like the, the sequence of things that has happened. He, he miraculously feeds thousands of people. The crowds are kind of in an uproar. And then that night he walks on water. And the next day, people are eager to be around him. I understand why. And in John six twenty eight, these crowds of people ask Jesus a question. What can we do to perform the works of God? What can we do to do God's will, right? And Jesus replied, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. Without a break in the dialogue, right? Like this is, this is happening in real time. John records the response of the crowd. What sign then are you going to do so that we can see and believe? What are you going to perform? We want more. Do you see it in them? And do you see it in you? Just do God's will and you can remain forever. You can be in Christ. Well, just, just believe. Well, okay, Jesus, but will you show me a little more first? Like, I can believe, but I'm just craving a little more. If, if you really want me to be passionate about this, 
this gospel thing. I, I'm going to need you to, to show me something. We, we, we know that you're insinuating that, that you are God's son, and that if we just believe in you, we've, we've obeyed God's will. But we're going to need you to prove it. Don't we do that all the time? Like, I, I, I want this different life, this, this life that's shaped by the gospel. I, I want to, to believe that Jesus can change me radically. I want to believe that he's doing something in me. And I'll act on that, Jesus, if you'll just show me a little something. Like, give me a sign. Jesus, if you really want me to join my life to yours, give me a sign. If you really want me to, to be someone who goes outside and joins you on mission with my neighbors or serves with partners or gives up time or money to, to see people come to know Christ, you're just going to have to pitch in a little extra so that I know that it's you asking me to do that. Jesus, if you, if you want me to say, uh, like, stay hungry about making disciples, would you just bless me financially first so I don't have to work so much and I've got time to do that? Maybe, and here's the other thing that we'll do. We'll, we'll talk about seasons of life. Well, you know, when I get married and have kids, then I'll be able to do this. And if it's not that, it's like, well, when my kids can get to the point where they're driving and I don't have to take them everywhere, then, then I'll really be able to press into my faith. Or, you know, maybe one day when I retire, then I'll have more time on my hands to do that. Like, it's always a season. All of it boils down to this idea, right, that maybe someday... Jesus, after you've shown yourself faithful, I'll believe a little more. My life will reflect my belief in you a little more. All that to say this. We see Jesus all the time. We see him moving. We see him changing people's lives. We see him affecting our day. I had a conversation this week, like, just the miracle of knowing that when we open our Bibles in the morning and, like, we read it and we, we, have, we hear God's voice as, he, as the words of Scripture penetrate our soul, like, that is a miracle to think that God would meet us in that place. But our response is too often to ask Him to give us a little more. Lust. And that steals our joy. Thank goodness for the good news that 1 John 2.17 says, the world with its lust is passing away, and the one who does the will of God remains forever. Jesus responds to the people's request for a sign a few verses later. John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. You see, the good news is, is that every time you go and you take a deeper bite of Jesus, every time that you go and you say, Jesus, like, I'm giving myself to you, I'm laying something down, I'm limiting myself so that I can have more of you, he satisfies again and again and again and again. His will never runs dry. He always has enough for you. It truly is a limitless life in Christ. The world with its lust is passing away. And Jesus is providing a life with no limits. So what is it to do the will of God? It's to believe that he can do that. When you believe in Jesus, Jesus provides that limitless life. He is the bread of life. Come to him and believe. Each time we choose to come to Jesus, each time we choose to believe that he is the bread of life, we find contentment and joy that is unlimited. So if you want that life, you must believe that Jesus will help you conquer the lust in your heart through limits. 
Look at verse 15 with me. Verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You know, some of us, when we read a, a clear command like this, it's like we quickly forget that our first responsibility is to believe that Jesus is the one doing that work. Instead, we're tempted to set hard lines for ourselves and to limit things for the wrong reasons. You know, like, I'm just going to set this arbitrary limit. I'm not going to drink Coke. Does that help me conquer my lust for more? I'm going to take a month off of social media. Does that help me conquer my lust for more? I'm going to limit my financial spending or some other arbitrary limit. But oftentimes, the limits we set are still for us. They're not to have Jesus take over our hearts. So how can I make sure that my limits are helping me conquer lust in my heart? I want us to go back to, to verse 12. So really, it's this kind of strange piece of the text. If you're looking at it in your Bible, it looks more like a poem, like poetry inside of this letter. Verses 12 through 14, it's, it's a little bit strange. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you've come to know the one who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. Now, before I keep going, I want you to notice that these stages of life aren't in order. And, and, and now, as I read the rest, notice the repetition. I've written to you, children, because you've come to know the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you've come to know the one who's from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. This interesting stage of life order reminds us that we're all on a continual journey. It makes sense to us that you start as a child, and in your faith even, you start as a child. Like That's forgiveness of sins, that's salvation. And that you're maturing into a father who knows completely and knows from the beginning who God is. That makes sense. But then he ends the sequence coming back to the young men. And, and the verb that he puts in there is that these young men are, are conquerors. They're conquering. It's as if John is saying to us, hey, lust is something that you're going to have to conquer on your way to maturity in knowing God and having complete joy. It's something that you're going to have to continue to, to strain out of your heart to recognize more and more the things of this world that are clamoring for your heart and keeping them away, limiting your heart from them, conquering those things. But the repetition of these things tells us that this is important. And it also makes the differences stand out, right? The verb tense has changed from present to past. And it shows us that he's reminding them of something that has both already happened and is still happening. It's this idea, right, that, that we are conquering. We, we, are, we are continuing to, to limit ourselves from the things of this world so that we might have more of Jesus. When we look at that young men verse, he says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you've conquered the evil one in 13. But then you jump down to 14. He says, I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you. There's an extra phrase. And you have conquered the evil one. The reason, John says, that they have conquered the evil one was because God's word remained in them as their strength. And what was God's word? To believe in the one he had sent. You're going to conquer evil and you're going to conquer the evil one through his strength that you believe in not by your arbitrary limits or your ability to strain out the world. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, the enemy's really good at what he does. This word for conquer in the Greek comes from the root, nikeo, Nike. We all know what that means, right? 
It's this idea that, that you can do it. You can do it. And the company in this world sells that idea to you that, man, you've got some kind of inner fortitude, like you can press through, you can take the hill. It's all about you. But we know in the gospel, this idea of conquering the evil one, our strength comes from God's word remaining in us. So because of that, instead of first asking, what should I limit in my life to conquer lust? What if we ask instead, what is the enemy causing me to lust after? What is he telling me that I can do? What is he, can, what is he telling me that I can get more of, that I can achieve? And when I recognize the things that my heart is lusting after, then I can begin to set limits, believing that Jesus will restore my joy. Why is it that I'm lusting after certain vacations or certain trips? Why is it that I'm lusting after a certain kind of house or a certain kind of property? I always find myself drawn to wanting more of this. Why is it that I want a certain car or I want to do certain things? Why is it that, that you know, I'm always lusting after uh, people in a sexual way? Why is it that I'm wanting more alcohol or, or I can't seem to, to lay down the late night snack? What, what is it that I'm lusting after that my heart wants more of? And when we answer that question, then we can begin to set limits that help us to conquer the lust that is within our hearts. Here's the other reality. It will likely be a series of limitations, not a single limitation, that leads to conquering lust in your life. Uh, here's the best way I know to... to help make that make sense. This week, um, Tinley and Preston and I uh, sat down to a fantastic game of Clue. Anybody played Clue? Yeah, great game. So uh, it's really fun to teach kids to play games like that. And, uh, you know, the first couple times you play, they're like just making arbitrary guesses at who did it. <laughs> you're like two rounds in and you're like, I'm accusing. And I'm like, well, hold on. There's no way that you know who did this yet. Right? And they had to learn that the only way that you find the real enemy, the only way that you come to know what's stealing the joy in your heart is by limiting who it could actually be. Right? So you go to rooms that you have and you pick cards that you have and you narrow it down. and you know It's so fun. I love it. I love crushing them in Clue. They will learn one day. That same process can be played out in our lives as we learn to conquer the lust that we have in our hearts. When we're willing to, to courageously admit, I'm lusting after this, I'm lusting after this, my heart wants more of this, and I'm not really sure why, then we can begin a series of limitations. And what if I limited myself from looking at this? What if I didn't allow myself to, to take this in? By a series of those things, we can begin to watch Jesus reclaim our hearts and fill us with the Holy Spirit. Narrow is the path that leads to the kingdom. When you begin to set limits, you isolate the enemy, and then, because you are strong and God's word remains in you, you conquer the evil one. You conquer him. But most importantly, when you limit yourself, you make room to be filled by a limitless spirit. Caitlin and I, uh, especially early on in our marriage, but still true today, one of our favorite places to go on date night is a Japanese restaurant, Hibachi Grill. Uh, anybody else Hibachi Grill fans? Nope, just me and Caitlin. 
When you go, just in case you've never been, although I doubt that, like, there's just mounds of food. Like, talk about lust. It's probably a problem. I don't know. But, like, I, there is a ton of food. And so, Caitlin and I have gotten to the point where, at least well, I should back up. I've gotten to the point where if I know we're going to Japanese, I'm not having lunch. Or if I do, it's like a little bit. Like, I limit myself at lunch so that I'm ready to eat this huge dinner. When you want to be filled by something, you want to be filled by something good, you don't fill up on junk. You limit yourself. John 3.34, Jesus. John 3.34, it says, For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. Without measure. Jesus will give you as much of the Spirit as you can take, as much as you can consume. But we must be limiting ourselves so that we have more and more room to be filled by the Spirit. You say, this filled with the Spirit thing, it sounds a little freaky. Josh Howerton's definition has been the most helpful to me recently. He says, to be filled with the Spirit means two things. Your life looks more like Jesus' life, and you receive power for your calling. Your life looks more like Jesus' life, and you receive power for your calling. Now, I know we're in the middle of summer, and, and I think it's good. We rest, we, we recharge, we get ready to, to, to go again, all the things. But that doesn't limit the work of our King. And so I humbly ask, what if even just the people in the room today were filled with the Spirit? What if they joined Jesus as he conquered lust in their hearts and the things that were taking too much of our hearts, right, you, yours and mine, began to be strained away and replaced by the power of the Holy Spirit, God himself, guiding your every thought, your every action, your every reaction. What if every person in this room began to look more like Jesus and receive power for the calling that he has on your life? It kind of gets me excited. It makes me want to be filled with the Spirit. I can join Jesus in that if I will simply limit my life and the things that I lust after. It was at the Last Supper right after Jesus had served the first communion to his disciples, that Jesus told his disciples this Holy Spirit was coming to fill them. Within hours of Jesus telling his disciples, this Spirit, the Counselor, is coming, Jesus would limit himself. He would not call on angels or his own divinity to save him or to remove him from the cross or the pain, but instead he would die there, limiting his power being obedient to the cross. And he did that so that all who would believe could have a limitless life filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you believe? Do you believe? If today you've, you've never made that decision to believe or you've never witnessed to that decision by Christian baptism, I want to invite you to come and have a conversation with Katie. She'll be in the back as the band comes and we respond. And if you do believe, and if you have been baptized, would you choose to limit yourself? And when you limit yourself, believe that you're making room to be filled by a limitless spirit who wants to help you conquer the evil one.
For all those who've practiced believer's baptism, we're inviting you to take communion, to go back to that very meal where Jesus introduced this idea of the Spirit to his disciples. That meal, that meal is a meal that fills you full because Jesus is the bread of life. We symbolically taste the bread of life, our Savior who limited himself to give us limitless life. We drink deep of his forgiving blood so that we might be filled with his love and forgiveness for others. The communion meal is a meal that will fill you up time and time and time again. And so as we prepare to respond, I want to I pray a very simple prayer. It's a prayer that are the lyrics of one of my favorite songs from Jeremy Camp entitled Empty Me. Would you stand with me as I, I pray the simple chorus from his song? Prayer simply says this. Holy fire, burn away my desire for anything that is not of you and is of me. I want more of you and less of me. Empty me, God. Empty me and fill me. Won't you fill me with you, with only you? We pray that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, DJ again. Thanks for joining us at the canteen and listening to this week's message. Uh, we hope it was helpful to you and that you're encouraged and challenged as we set out this week to walk the walk of faith together, joining Jesus in going outside. Uh, if you're a part of Christ's community, hey, let's let's lean into this. Let's not let this just be an academic exercise, but let's apply what we've heard today. How can you be applying this truth in your life this week? If you're not part of the Christ community family, we're glad that you joined us, glad that you found us, and we hope that, uh, that this message was helpful to you as well. One encouragement we would give you, if you're not part of a local church, uh, please don't use these resources as a substitute for that. It is a pale imitation of the real thing as we live in community with one another. So if you're in the Shelbyville area, we'd love to have you come out and join us. But wherever you are, find a local church, get plugged in an experienced Christian community as it was meant to be, and continue to use these resources to supplement that journey. But please don't replace it. Thanks for joining us this week. Grab your backpack, and I will see you on the trail. Thanks for listening to The Backpack, a production of Christ Community Church. The Backpack is hosted by DJ Williams, Daniel Bright, and Josiah Ward. You can learn more about Christ Community Church at loveshelbyville.com.